And now we want to share something special with our listeners, introducing Lit and Lit Extra, the new hot sauce IEX just created. We're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market. It's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some. You can check it out at iextrading.com slash podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at IEX and let us know how you like it. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Um, very honored today to have a special guest, a, a guy I consider a friend of mine in the industry and someone I've known for a while, uh, John Casenza from Goldman Sachs. Uh, welcome, welcome, John. Wait, John Ramsey, go. Welcome, John, and pleasure welcome. being here. Thanks for having welcome me. Welcome uh, to Boxes and Lines, where market structure intersects with a wee bit of the old sod. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mr. Casenza. <laughs> um, th thanks for joining. You, 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 might, you might be wondering why the hell you're on this at this point. But, uh, don't worry. <laughs> you might be regretting it already, but J JR gets better stuck. a few minutes in. It takes yep. a while to warm up. So, uh, you know, John, John obviously, I've, I've known John back from my days when I worked at Radiance in the tech world, and John was at ATM before Cowan, and now he's at Goldman Sachs, and we'll touch upon that in a second. But uh, also an interesting thing about John is, John is actually one of the two sell-side representatives on IEX's exchange board. And it's something that I didn't even realize we needed to do. But when we went from um, an ATS to an exchange, we had to have a separate exchange board. And as part of it, you need representation from the sell-side as well as the buy-side. And uh, we, we had uh, you know circled back with a bunch of our buy-side uh, contacts on our trading advisory committee. And... Uh, John Goldman and Jutton at Jeffries were voted in and now represent and listen to me quarterly talk about how great IEX is. So you're not sick of us yet, John. Not yet. I'd like to think that partially our role is to, you know, keep you and Brad, you know, on your toes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, you know, the, the board is such a broad representation of, of talented individuals across, you know, diverse backgrounds. I think having the perspective of, of two sell-side members that provide perspective of the equity sort of market participant ecosystem um, is, is pretty complimentary. And, and on our side, we certainly learn a lot from, from the others on the board as well. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're a great crew, as you just said. I mean, we have former CFO of Major League Baseball, Jonathan Mariner. We have the chief marketing officer of uh, Progressive, you know, and, and, and a lot of times, like an in, in, inside secret, he'll show us some of the ads before they go live on television, which is it's pretty cool when you see them um, guy, guy's an amazing individual. We have a lot of people know Jeff Sonnenfeld uh, from the Yale Business School. So yeah, we, we've we, we've a great crew. But uh, you and Jutton have been great. Uh, appreciate you being on it. So let's let's jump first into a career and role, right? So in your career, you've held a leadership role at a startup, like I talked about, like ATM, an agency broker, Cowan, and a bulge bracket broker now, Goldman Sachs. And kind of curious on that trajectory and what are the similarities and differences in building the business at those different places? Wow, that's a good question. I think the similarities <laughs> are, are pretty easy. I mean, you analyze the competitive landscape and you implement a strategic plan, and then you focus on managing the risks, assessing the results and performance, you know, curating great culture, you know, building best-in-class products and, and, you know, managing great client relationships are, are really the recipe, you know, regardless of whether you're at a startup agency broker or, or bulge bracket. I think the differences on like the bookends of, you know, startup and bulge um, are really interesting. Uh, and I, I've learned a lot, you know, certainly in the journey, but at a startup, 
you have limited resources and all bad outcomes are existential risk. (laughs) So as an operator, your sanity checking and stress testing your thought process many moves ahead because you just don't have the luxury of of mistakes. Um, At a startup, you're going out of business. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, at the bulge rank, really the scale and scope are so big. Um, So you're, you know, innately a little bit slower on a relative basis, um, but you have the ability to recycle the benefits of scale back to your clients and create competitive advantage, um, which is really like, you know, interesting and exciting. And then I think, you know, an agency broker is like kind of in the middle of of those two, those two things. Um, You certainly have more resources and platform than a startup. Um, and you have the, you certainly have the advantage of agility and flexibility. Um, and, you know, if you execute like on any of those like three levels, you know, your plan, um, you know, especially in building like great products and, and, and having great client relationships, you're going to be successful. Um, but it's been an interesting journey. I'd say even, you know, before, you know, my electronic chapter, I have an interesting vantage point in that you know, I'm dating myself, but my career kind of coincided with the electronification of markets in U.S. equities. So I was one of the, the infancy, like beginning users uh, of algorithms in like first generation electronic trading when I was a trader. Um, so I was a, a trader at UBS before I even entered sort of the low touch world. And that's always, I think, given me a little bit of a compass in that like I was like a user. So when I think about, you know, sort of the client experience and I think about products like I had the vantage point of like being in the cockpit and kind of driving the car um, and thinking about, you know, the client lens and, and the product lens from, from being a user. And it also defines you as a crazy bastard to leave a sell side job like that, to do a startup. I, I know, I know some of us from IEX did the same thing and, and you're right. It, it is a pretty big leap of faith at the beginning and you do look a uh, total failure in the eye, but it's, it, it, it's also exciting. So it's a pr- pretty interesting. Actually, you you came from the sell side, went to startup, and now uh, you're at a bulge bracket. And you, your your role or one of your roles, actually, because I interact with you a lot, John, you're, you're co-head of electronic product. Uh, how do you think about product across different geographies, right? I, I, obviously, market structure is sim- same, but very different. Uh, how do you think about it there? Yeah, I think, you know, I and, and we think about uh, the different component layers of an execution stack. And, and if you think about, you know, the client API and the parameters that you allow clients to, to input, those are really like universal problem statements uh, and user stories like across regions. And then when you, when you get down to, you know, the order placement and the smart order router and actually the point of execution at any like trading destination, you know, across regions, that's where kind of like the technical like divergence really starts like happening for, you know, different market structure and business rules. Um, so there is a lot of, you know, commonality um, in, in the building uh, of these products, but there's also sort of, you know, healthy room for divergence um, market by market. And then when I think when you think about, you know, going from, um, you know, a market like the U.S., which is just like a monstrosity, um, you know, of a, a problem to, you know, a region like, you know, Asia, where there's just, you know, a lot of like different markets, like your deployment, you know, of products is, is, is very different and your, and your approach is different because the lead times when you're going to double digit markets um, requires, you know, a different type of, you know, thought uh, and approach versus, you know, you know, deploying in, in one um, very big, very complex market. 
Well, um, I'm, but there, you know, but, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I was interested when you said the U.S. is kind of like a monstrosity uh, in, in terms of, <laughs> could you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with you uh, at all, but I'm just uh, curious to get, uh, draw that out a little bit. Yeah, so if you think about uh, 16 exchanges, uh, 40 ATSs, each ATS has, you know, multiple segments, uh, multiple single dealer, you know, platforms. And then you think about, you know, markets that uh, just have much less fragmentation, although that theme is certainly pervasive um, in, in, in markets uh, in Asia. Um, they're just, you know, it's very different, you know, when you think about, um, you know, a problem with massive, massive like liquidity, like fragmentation um, on exchange, off exchange splits to markets that have, you know, a central, uh, you know, a central exchange. Um, but there are many markets um, that have different rules and different, you know, market structures. So yeah. it's, it's apples and oranges. But when we when we look at like our API to the client, they still have that same like, you know, problem statement of, you know, what they're trying to do. John, don't attack our guest. He's just doing his best, you know. <laughs> I'm not I'm not attacking John, you. John, John's a former a, regulator in the U.S. I, I, yeah, thank you, Ronan. Yes, everybody knows that. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought it was a I thought it was a very perceptive statement. Uh, it certainly it, it 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 feels sometimes like kind of a monstrous uh, market structure over here. Now, um, so certainly in terms of the fragmentation, and I am I'm interested. And also interested, John, in your thoughts about the, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the decline in um, lit trading and displayed uh, liquidity generally, um, especially over the last year. So the level of trading off exchange has been, you know, uh, at, at, at unprecedented levels, uh, a lot of that related to the increase in some of the retail trading. Uh, did, 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 does that present challenges to you or people in your position, how do you how do you think about that trend? Is that something that worries you? And 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 um, is there is is it something that you think needs to be addressed? Yeah, listen, I think it's a healthy time for a rethink when you, you go through you know days or, or periods where over half of the continuous market is trading off exchange, yet price discovery is, is governed by uh, reg domestic exchanges. Um, yeah, listen, I, reconciling that, um, you know, in, in my head, it, like, I don't know what the percentage is um, of, of where this becomes, you know, you know, a slippery slope. But um, I certainly think, you know, when you go above 50%, um, it, it's a good time for, you know, a rethink um, and, you know, bringing people to the table to, you know, have this type of like, you know, discussion of, you know, has the off exchange uh, activity, you know, gone too far? Um, I think that's a good question, and it's a it's a timely question, uh, with or without, you know, the, the rise of retail. Yeah, well, the, well, that's the interesting thing is that uh, we don't really know what the tipping point is, and and probably nobody really knows, right? Uh, but we're kind of living that experiment now, uh, and that you know, interesting thing is that you may not really know um, when the pendulum has has swung too far until, uh, you know, in, until some of the damage has already been done. Anyway, that's my little editorial statement. I, I thought it was great, John, honestly. Thank uh, you. It ties in great to our next question to two Johns here, I just noticed. John mm -hmm. Ramsey, John Casanza. Mr. Casanza, best X, right? So look, look, I've been in this business a long time and it's it's one of those ill-defined terms, but people always talk about best X. 
and exactly what John is saying in 2021 and and COVID of last year, all the the off exchange, you know, it, how do you think about delivering best execution, and especially in the context of Goldman Sachs and the size of your client base? And I guess the second part of that long winded question is, how's it evolved over time? Well, let's take aside like the regulatory kind of like obligation. What I think yep. has evolved, you know, over time is uh, unbundling, the combined effects of unbundling, heightened levels of transparency, proliferation of algo wheels and automation, uh, and increased levels of data has really, you know, kind of brought into focus what's important um, across a diverse set of clients who really vote with their feet on a daily basis. So if you, if you take out, a, you know, all of us have, you know, regulatory obligations around best X, really, you know, what's, you know, kind of like changed and evolved is that, you know, from a, a business-like perspective, a lot of these things have just, you know, come into, you know, focus of, and alignment um, by themselves. Um, so I think that, you know, when clients really define, you know, their benchmarks and their trading objectives, they have the data to measure and they allocate based upon, based upon who's providing the best experience or best execution quality, um, that's a really strong standard. Um, and we do have a very diverse set of clients, but if that's kind of like your first order of like, you know, you know, deliver to the client's needs uh, and the clients define what they want and they can measure all their providers, um, I think that's like, you know, been a, a really healthy um, advancement of the industry over the last, you know, you know, four or five years. And those are like the best conversations that we have with clients of when, you know, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of transparency, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of analysis, and there's a lot of like iteration. I totally agree with that. I guess uh, concerns the wrong word, but when I look at the total universe of clients is, you know, what percentage can really measure meaningfully and then award business as a result of that, like sort of putting the best X onus back on them. Not that I'm suggesting that's what you're saying, but so, so we have many listeners, uh, John Casenza, who are not, you know, Wall Street uh, savvy in terms of trading specifically. So I thought what I would do is you, you were talking there a little bit about uh, the measurement that clients do on the brokers and something that's become pretty popular over the last couple of years, like you said, is in fact that measurement is something called broker wheels, where a client will uh, non-biased way allocate a certain percentage of the orders to each broker. And then as those brokers perform better and better, the more performant broker gets more of a percentage. And, and, and I think that's sort of like a, a playing field you and Goldman and, and most brokers, I think, would want to compete on. That's a ringing of the bell to say he's very happy to compete on that. <laughs> However, my long-winded question is this, is where do you think we are with the buy side having the ability to really measure, like a large percentage of the buy side, the ability to measure? Yeah, listen, I think between uh, in-house proprietary teams uh, on data analytics and, and vendors, um, I think the last time I measured it, like, a quarter ago, I think in the last like 18 months, our request from clients to use uh, vendors, you know, for TCA had doubled, um, you know, just to put, you know, that in a little bit of context. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, um, I think, you know, clients that have significant amounts of execution, you know, order flow, um, 
are measuring, you know, their brokers pretty religiously. And I think in practice to the example that you gave Ronan, which I think was, was fantastic, is that when, when you have a, a framework, you know, based upon, you know, meritocracy, competitive forces take over. And when you are, you know, kind of the, the leader, you know, of the wheel, and you see an increase in um, allocation, um, you don't want to lose that. And you're super motivated um, to not take your eye off the ball and stay a step ahead. And conversely, like when you fall behind, you're, you're even more motivated to like, you know, play catch up and, and go win, you know, kind of like those parent daughters, which are the oxygen of all our ecosystems. And if you play that across every executing broker that's like competing, like over time, um, just those dynamics lead to like better execution quality for customers. Totally agree. Totally agree. It makes a ton of sense because whether, whether you're in the lead or your second, third, uh, you, you want to, you know, elevate your position, maintain your position, but it, le it leads to uh, the good type of competition. So couldn't agree more. John, do you want to touch on the liquidity question? Sorry, uh, John sure. Ramsey. <laughs> Thank this you. is throwing me for a loop. I'm going to call yeah, you Ramsey yeah, and Casenza. Uh, from yeah, it's very, we'll never have another John on the uh, <laughs> podcast. No. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, so we touched about this a little, a little bit before on with um, talking about the uh, erosion of, of displayed liquidity, but you're thinking about the liquidity landscape across the U.S. and the ability to source liquidity across exchanges um, and ATSs. Uh, that that obviously, I, I'm assuming that's gotten more complicated sort of over over the time that you've been in this job. Uh, is it um, uh, how do you cope with it, and where do you think it will move over the next sort of three to five years? And 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 I guess I should ask where where would you hope that it would move? Do do you think there would be broader market wide benefits if we ended up with Fewer exchanges, fewer um, ATSs, um, you know, still a lot of choices, but more aggregation of liquidity, uh, more kind of like a center of gravity um, uh, around places to find liquidity. Yeah, it, I think it's it's similar um, to the on-exchange, off-exchange percentage. I don't know if there's like a, a precise number or um, sweet spot on you know number of exchanges and ATSs, you know I think what's certainly becoming a global theme is you know global equity markets have embraced you know competition, um, which makes me believe like to one of your questions that you know there's no really um, there's really no end site for continued fragmentation not just like in the U.S. Um, but in markets around the world as long as you know, as long as competition is kind of like, you know, a first principle. Um, I do think it, you know, it in introduces, you know, complexity, as I mentioned before. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, trading destinations, you know, in the U.S. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, new order types there's, you know, and, and destinations. And that, you know, requires a lot of time and effort um, in engineering, you know, solutions and experimenting and, and iterating. Um, it also like presents opportunities for the people that are committed in investing in their technology and teams and get it right. Um, so I don't know if there's like, you know, a, a right, wrong, and I certainly don't have like a, 
a precise like number of like what's the sweet spot of exchanges and ATSs. Just you know my my personal opinion. Um, as we get like closer to like 20 exchanges, that seems um, it seems extremely uh, excessive without a ton of differentiation, um, you know, and, and a unique value added proposition uh, between the trading destinations. And and same thing, you know, um, you know, a lot of ATSs um, without unique value propositions. Um, so. Just my my view is like you know I would be taking the numbers down if this was like a magic wand and there was a a system that like I created and I had I had the vote um, it'd be certainly uh, a reduced number of exchanges and ATSs uh, but admittedly I'm not sure where that sweets but where where you end. Yeah, I mean it's it sounds like a '60s political slogan, but uh, we used to say like a. Uh fragmentation without differentiation not good but like things like you know i know it's public that you guys you you guys been goldman invested in a new platform like pure stream and just curious obviously armando's a good guy we, we've interacted with him over many previous roles just curious uh why why you invest in a platform like that or what, what you think that platform does that differentiates and differentiation is a, is a good thing don't get me wrong yeah, well, listen, we, we, you know, we feel, um, you know, it's incumbent upon us as, as market participants and not just, you know, Goldman Sachs to, to foster, you know, innovation and differentiation. Uh, and the PureStream platform certainly um, is, is one of one in, in that the order types, you know, are based upon matching around objectives, around participation of volume. Um, so I look at it, you know, like I said, you know, earlier from, you know, my beginning, the beginning of my career as a trader. And I always think about kind of like the trading instructions as the start point of whatever the client API is going to be for an electronic product. And when, when you get instructions, you know, to participate at 10%, um, to me, um, it's probably less sensible to take a parent order uh, look at eligible uh, volume from market data, discern what was accessible or inaccessible, um, and maintain, you know, a schedule across placing child orders to 16 exchanges, you know, 20 ATSs, five single dealer platforms to accomplish the client's objective of being 10% of the volume versus trying to find the other side of the trade who wants to be 10% of the volume with zero slippage to your benchmark. Um, so it's not a, you know, one size fits all market. Um, and we think like, you know, things like PureStream are like interesting as, as solutions to some of these client trading objectives. Makes, makes sense. Just don't take any of the flow that you guys currently sent to IEX and send there. Thank you. <laughs> okay, <fine>. next. <laughs> yeah, uh, and if you could bump that up a little bit, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, too. just saying. Uh, we got yeah, you live on the sure podcast. Yeah. What up, Cassandra? John, policy and reg. Go, <laughs> go. <laughs> oh, that's my, that's, I guess that's my yeah. review. Um, no, um, so uh, as you know, John, there's a lot of, you know, we've got, a new chairman for uh, Goldman alum in uh, the helm at the SEC. Uh, now a lot of discussions about uh, possible changes to the um, uh, the rules and uh, market structure uh, requirements. 
Is there anything in the, that, that, that stands out to you? I mean, I have one in particular that I'm be, I'd like to ask your opinion about, but um, are, there, are there one or two things that um, you think stand out as warranting action by the, by the current team at the SEC? I think these, these holistic reviews of the system and the plumbing are, are, are really hard. Um, you know, the issues are interconnected. You know, the market structure, as I mentioned before, is extremely complex. Um, there's knock-on effects on almost any direction, you know, you go. Um, so I'm more in general a fan of, you know, incremental change and smaller change yeah. versus like, you know, kind of the grand slam swing on like the overhaul of the system, um, which I think is just, you know, it's complex. It's extremely polarizing. It's hard to get um, consensus across, you know, all of the participants of the ecosystem. Um, so I, I think those, you know, those are really hard. Um, um, I do think, you know, something that, you know, we did some work on years ago in relation to the transaction fee pilot. Uh, I'm a fan of, you know, trying to, you know, simplify um, the markets where we can. Um, we had recommended in, in our proposal reducing the market access fee cap from 30 to 10. Um, mm -hmm. I think things like that where we can get a lot of the market participants on board um, and get some consensus, things that, you know, in general, you know, simplify the markets and give us like, you know, the, you know, the first small incremental change where we can like look at the data, um, see how it works and, and go from there. That's kind of how, you know, just my, you know, stylistic approach. Um, like I said, if, if you gave me the vote on, on what we should do. Um, I don't know how you guys felt. You guys obviously, you know, spent a, a ton of time, uh, you know, on the transaction fee, you know, pilot. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I can tell you what I think about it. Yeah. I can tell you what he thinks, <laughs> if he thinks anything about it uh, at the moment. I appreciate both of the things that you said because, um, uh, number one, I think when people start talking about needing to do a holistic review, often it's just a strategic way of um, saying we don't really want anything to happen. Because uh, if you say you got to like, you got to review everything and change everything, uh, you know that it's very unlikely that any of it's going to happen. Um, so I totally agree with you on that. And I think on, and um, I, I recall on you know, the make or taker system. And when that debate was going on that your firm, um, uh, I, I, I was a bit surprised, but also appreciated um, that the, the comment that uh, you guys put out was to say, look, there's an, an, a need for change, but there's not really a need for the SEC to do a pilot. Um, the SEC has got enough um, information uh, to, to be able to sort of chart a course and decide what it wants to do here. Um, and um, so, you know, my own view is that, uh, that, that the SEC does have, and with other data that it can collect, um, can, can figure out how to take on those issues around exchange transaction pricing in a way that make them a little more rational, because it does feel like, feels like for people who want to trade on exchange to access quotes, it's way too expensive. And this rebate system is so complicated um, and kind of skewed that it, it really creates irrational results. That's, that's great. Yeah, that's, so that's right. I think we said, you know, um, that, you know, there wasn't a pilot to establish 30 as the original 
market access fee cap. Right. Um, so, you know, however, you know, 15, 16, 17, you know, years later, um, I always bring this up just to like put it in context that, you know, the, the delta between, you know, the highest rebate that exchanges offer and the market access fee cap is now greater than the average electronic commission. So, right. um, you know, the, the difference between, you know, you know, the bid and the offer um, is, is greater than the average electronic commission is kind of like, you know, a staggering, like, you know, data point that, you know, 30, you know, 30, just doesn't feel like the right number. Yeah, yeah. There, there is one other proposal that's been made um, recently, uh, publicly, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on. Um, and this is this idea of changing uh, the tick size, in particular on exchanges. So one of the arguments is, yeah, we got to get more liquidity back on exchange, but exchanges are hamstrung because they can't uh, quote in the same way that other markets um, can. So one proposal was to say, you know, make, make it like into hundreds of a cent increment, uh, uh, increments uh, on, uh, or, or, you know, maybe, do you have any thoughts about that? And, 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 and saying at the outset that we're not necessarily, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't necessarily see that as a, as a silver bullet at all, but um, interested to see if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I want to, you know, just speaking, you know, for myself, I think like, a combination of the access fee cap and, and tick increments um, is an interesting, you know, are in, is interesting to combine. Um, I think I think most people would agree, you know, the, the, the challenge is like it's not a, a one size fits all market. Um, so without introducing unnecessary complexity, you know, how do we, you know, how do we deliver that nuance? Um, but Again, these are, you know, you know, you start having that discussion and then it's, you know, what's the right, you know, increment on getting a lot of consensus on um, getting a lot of consensus is, is just really, you know, is really difficult. Yep. Totally. So now I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to return the favor to you, John. So uh, John interviewed me on a fireside chat that Goldman was doing with a bunch of different exchange members and. Uh, asked a question I hadn't been asked on uh, one of those before and said, uh, give us two fun facts about yourself. So I'm returning the favor and I want you, John Casenza, give us a couple of fun facts about yourself. Some people know, uh, some people know this, but most people don't, you know, I was a huge uh, sports statistics, uh, you know, fanatic, you know, as a kid, baseball cards. I don't know <laughs> if uh, Ronan or, or John, you ever played a game called, uh, you know, Stratomatic but it was like a cards dice game combined with statistics no. is, you know, this no, is no. I was cool as a kid, uh, John. I <laughs> yeah, was, uh, yeah. I'm sure you were real cool. You were probably like, you yeah, were probably in juvenile say, detention like, most of the time. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry uh, that led into like, you know, a uh, big rotisserie baseball, um, you know, player. This is like pre digital pre internet where, you know, someone each week, how to basically go to the the newspaper box scores and and you know compute the stats, uh, which eventually you know turned into you know kind of fantasy sports, which is like an area that you know I've I've followed, I've invested in, um, and 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 love. Um, so I think that's you know one fun fact of like almost like any sport, 
Um, anything around statistics, you know, I, I probably uh, played or dabbled for sure. And is that any sport? Because it feels like baseball is the one that is like yields more kind of like, I suppose any sport could, but it's, it feels like there is more. But, uh, I think baseball, the purest. Yeah, I think the purest feel that baseball probably has the most skill. Um, whereas fantasy football probably has um, a higher degree of, of luck. Um, that's just from like, you know, kind of the purest, but yeah, I think I've played, um, you know, most of the sports and I, I follow all, all of the sports, you know, as well, the major sports. What's your thoughts then on, uh, uh, I guess your opinion on uh, baseball this year and the fact that there's just, uh, it sort of seems to be, a pitcher's year and a lot of people i'm not a big baseball guy but i listen to sports radio are complaining that baseball has gotten even more boring than it was before yeah i i think you know the the length of the games um and you know the, the duration in between action um hasn't really adjusted for like a new demographic of people that need instant gratifications and, <laughs> exactly. um, and yeah. it's just, it, it's that simple. Um, and almost every sport, you know, there is a play or, you know, there is a hit, um, you know, in real time and, you know, you know, baseball is just slower. It's funny when I, when I moved to the U S and I'm a big soccer fan, Americans would go, Oh, soccer is so boring. There's no goals. I'm like, have you ever fucking watched a baseball game? And, um, at least, uh, not that I'm saying people should be taking steroids, but at least in the steroid era, there was much more excitement to baseball and home runs and the, the you know, the, the Sammy Sosa, what's his name, McGuire, uh, that competition, and what's the fella in San Diego? Anyway, not a big baseball guy, but <laughs> we, can, we can tell. But you're yeah. for steroids, and so we, we how clearly I love are. steroids, yeah. not baseball, but I was just, I was just curious uh, uh, what John thinks. And then what would you say um, is, your, is your favorite sport? Oh, man, that's like picking a, a favorite child. Um, favorite you know, sport to play? Oh, favorite sport to play uh, was soccer than basketball favorite sport to watch is probably you know football slash you know basketball i should have also mentioned in my my fun fact that you know when you start with like sports and statistics like you are just like ripe for debate um so you know me and my you know childhood friends college friends you know friends in this industry like uh, I get roped into like the, the, the classic sports debates, like all the time. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're always interesting. Actually a, a debate you and I got involved with uh, as it relates to your basketball uh, prowess was a, a few years ago, we were out on a business trip in San Francisco and um, there were a couple of guys from Goldman and a couple of guys from IEX. And uh, John was talking about how, when he worked on the West coast, obviously market closes at 1 PM their time, he could go out and play basketball quite a bit. And I was asking him, he's like, yeah, I'm a good basketball player. So, um, another, uh, uh, another coworker of John's at Goldman suggested that he challenge another Goldman employee to a basketball game. And, um, the guy, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily tall or super athletic looking. So I decided to, um, bet on John and, the uh, other guy bet on the other guy, but he bet a thousand dollars. And I, my inner monologue is like, "Oh fuck, John's a client <laughs> and a friend. 
I got to go all in. So I go, yeah, I'll bet a thousand on John. Then it turns out that you can fill in the details, John, where the other guy played college basketball. <laughs> so why yeah, you don't don't bet on Ronan ever? Yeah, I, Ronan yeah. actually put that in uh, for expenses. Uh, with I, I think he recovered that fine. Yeah, I was sorry. No, when you hear the story now, that'll sound worse. Yeah. Okay. All right. Never mind. Yeah. Listen, I, I love the blind loyalty. Um, <laughs> Ronan completely got um, got baited um, in that you know the, the player that um i was supposed to play against like played you know division one basketball was a walk-on at cal um and before ronan had that piece of information he was already locked in on a match trade <laughs> uh we had a date set and um you know kind of ironically and and i felt horrible um we were supposed to ronan and i were supposed to fly back out that fall to play the game and um you know, this, this, uh, this fellow that works, you know, you know, with me ended up like blowing out his like, you know, Achilles. Um, we call that a forfeit win, um, you know, in our books. Um, so, you know, Ronan was actually like victorious by a forfeit. Um, yeah. Although I, n- I never got paid. So not that I relish in your coworkers in, in injury, but, uh, I still think I'm owed a grand. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, John. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you and your entitlement issues. Right. <laughs> All right, Mr. Casenza, right. we have a question of questions we ask uh, every guest. I'm very curious to hear yours, being that you basically grew up on Wall Street over the past like 25 years. But uh, what's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? I mean, Wall Street has to be, you know, listen, until your movie comes out or your TV show comes out. Uh, I reserve the right to change my answer, but wall street, I mean, you know, you know, Gordon Gecko is enough of a supporting argument. One of the greatest kind of movie characters of all time. Yeah, no, I agree. It was an iconic movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to make the, the obvious choice, but, but it is the choice of most. John Ramsey, you don't like that answer? What? No, I know. I love that answer. I just always like uh, a boiler room. I don't know if you saw Boiler Room. I, I always like that one because it was like because it shows people in the SEC uh, kicking ass, you know, rush, rushing in, kicking ass with the pulling, you know, pulling guns. And um, for John's next birthday, I'm going to buy him an F, uh, an SEC windbreaker, and I'll let <laughs> I him attend. Were, I thought you were going to say you're going to buy me a gun. I <laughs> no, no, that would be no. A bad I, idea. I I can't yeah. go that far. But <laughs> an, an SEC windbreaker. And we'll let you kick in the door here or something. Yeah, right? thank you. That'll make I you happy. Appreciate, appreciate that. Well, now, are you going to tell our distinguished guest what it is he uh, receives? I was leaving. Uh, I was leaving that for you, podcast. John. I, I oh, know okay. you love the award section. As a, a reward, uh, <laughs> and a significant reward it is for appearing on our podcast, we will give you your own um, individual set of boxes and line socks. He's he's not even joking, John. <laughs> he's not he's, joking. He's am, he's, he's speechless. Stunned, stunned <laughs> silence. Stunned silence. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we we'd like for you to share a photo of you wearing them. They are actually we've had boxing line socks 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 before, <laughs> but we but we do have special socks uh, that are sent to our guests. No no one leaves here empty-handed or footed. So <laughs> <laughs> enjoy them, Cassandra. How did you come up with socks? I mean, you guys have probably the best swag on the street, bar none. Um, boxes and lines, 
get socks. I mean, <laughs> I don't yeah, want to end up. I mean, we do that. have other things. We could send you other stuff in addition. No, 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 John, no, John, don't, 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 you know, you got to talk the socks up. Well, so what I will tell you is generally <laughs> when you're gifted uh, vendor socks, they're not comfortable. They're all like uh, almost crinkly. These socks are very, very comfortable. And, you know, you're on your feet all day, John. So we're just, we're just trying to look at. <laughs> all right, we'll send you a hat. <laughs> we've got beer we've got you know vets, we got hot sauce we've got hot sauce yeah we've got, yeah what, whatever uh, we listen, can you do. guys have a you guys have a long track record of great swag so i'm gonna reserve judgment until i uh try on the socks <laughs> you guys have come through um you guys have come through in the past so um I might have will, to edit this part out. I will report back. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we got heckled by a guest on the gift that we gave him. Everybody else fucking pretends they're happy only, with a pair of socks. It's yeah. only a matter of time. Yeah. Uh, Maybe he's yeah. the, the the one honest guest. I I think that's more more likely than not. Anyway, John Casenza and John Ramsey, my favorite Johns. Thank you so much <laughs> for, for joining this podcast. We we appreciate it as always and hope you had fun on here. It was a great time. Uh Thanks for having me. Look forward to seeing you guys in person. Absolutely. Thank you, John. The same take, you. take it away, Ramsey. Take it away. God bless. God bless and see you again on the next Boxes in Line. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.